Hi, this is Mike Metcalf. I want to talk somewhat reluctantly or with a lot of reservation about leadership systems. It might well be that other terms like role model or coordinator uh, sit more comfortably. Our hero, Oscar, didn't like bosses. He didn't like to be told what to do. He'd come from a very military background. He had a rather bossy parents. He went to a naval college at high school, spent a lot of time in boarding schools, and had a very bossy older sister. And it resulted in his having a natural dislike for anybody who told him what to do. He quite liked the phrase, don't lead, don't follow. In the naval school, he'd been given quite a lot of responsibility for getting 50-odd cadets through their day. Uh, And at the end of it, had really concluded that he didn't really want to spend his time leading or looking out for other people. However, he did understand that certain people had 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 an influence on his life. He particularly liked the character of Sherlock Holmes. He liked David Carradine's portrayal of the Kung Fu character. His wife was fairly empathetic to other people. These people have had some sort of leadership role. There was another guy who was a rather nice farmer in New Zealand called Ron Cross, whose personality was what Oscar wanted to imitate. So you'd have to say they had some sort of leadership role in Oscar's life. This brings up the question in his mind about what exactly leadership is. You hear a lot of people, both in business and in the community, saying... We're training people to be leaders, or I'm a leader. Oscar rather felt that if you'd just been appointed the boss of an organisation or the Minister of Education, you couldn't automatically assume you were a leader or it was a leadership role. He wanted it to be a term that referred to inspiration, to role models, to heroes, to something you'd want to imitate rather than somebody who had organisational power. Of course, in the the military, leadership was understood to be shut up, do as you're told, stand to attention, how dare you, don't be insolent, I've given you an order. That sort of leadership really grated badly with Oscar. As did that rather two-faced or passive-aggressive form where people who thought of themselves as tree-huggers or community leaders who tried to persuade by being nice and, and in fact even sometimes you know, threatening to take your job off you rather than just shouting at you to shut up. The, the passive-aggressive form of leadership was slightly more obnoxious and the Navy influence had left Oscar feeling that leaders should be out the front in the Nelson style of 
well, if anybody's going to get shot, it's me, rather than the modern political leadership where I have the deepest and strongest bunker, so if I start a war, I'll be the last one to die. That sort of leadership didn't appeal to Oscar. It used to be that kings stood at the front of an army. Amusingly to Oscar, they, there were agreements passed where, because kings t tended to be so incompetent at leading armies, it was agreed that they weren't allowed to e lead an army. But they did need to be on the battlefield and be the target of attacks by the enemy. This again reinforces the role model or hero or imitation interpretation of leadership. People who are making up the rules out front directing people should be the most capable or experienced and the most at risk. This reminds you of uh, Talab's point about blood in the game is the people who direct people around should have the most blood in the game, the most to lose from a failure of whatever operation or project it is you're undertaking. And yet he accepted that often you know, attributed to the French remark that if you're the general and yet you're doing everything, you're not really the general. Generals should be directing operations, not doing the operations. But I th still think that generals should have the most skin in the game, not, not privates. The only leadership system that Oscar could really get his head around was one where the leader coordinated a, a, an agreed mindset that should be used by you know, whatever the team was or the group of people that they purported to lead. So it, let's assume we're running a project that somebody would say this project should be run using this handful of criteria or concepts to interpret everything that goes on. Um, so, using the well-worn example of the German invasion of France in the First and Second World War, and obviously simplifying a lot, in the First World War there was the Stefan Plan. So leadership was having a very detailed plan of troop movements where everybody was to be, how the trains were to go back and forth and how many people they would hold and how, how quickly you could unload troops at a train station, where the bullets and coffins and artillery needed to be on every day of the battle. And of course it took a couple of days of the outbreak of the war before this detailed plan fell apart. I think the same could be said of the Normandy landings, two years in the planning and it was not very long before the plan had to be abandoned. It lasted long enough to make the operation sort of successful, but it, it really wasn't that successful. The plan, that is, wasn't, didn't hold up um, over a matter of weeks. It had to be rethought. In contrast, during the Second World War, 
They used a sort of a different system, often called Blitzkrieg, but that's confused with the the use of tanks and rapid mobility. But what happened was that the tank commanders were sort of told, you know, we'd like to own France, and that you have a handful of concepts that you have to use when you undertake operations. These include communications, that is, keep you know, radioing back to explain what you've done and where you are and what's going on. Another concept might call multi-force, that is, you should really arrive, artillery, infantry and air force should arrive at a defended position at the same time, shouldn't attack it individually. The rapids or mobile tend to go round things rather than be sieging things for long periods of time, which I think also include the idea of, you know, narrow thrusts that are joined up with other narrow thrusts, using that's what using the speed of tanks and and trucks. So they had this handful of concepts they had to use every time they came to a situation where they had to make a decision, and the command headquarters at the back would respond to that and adjust things and organize the logistics around what was going on. So here you have a leadership that coordinates mindsets, coordinates decision-making criteria. If everybody in the army is using the same set of criteria, you have a good feeling for what the other guys are going to do when they come to a problem. So you get a sort of mental leadership as opposed to a detailed planning tell you, you know, you must do this. It's a, it's a leadership of how to think. It can't be over rigorous and too extensive. Having a handful of concepts was found to be enough to give the sort of coordination they were looking for. Taking a more everyday example... Imagine you have a group of five or six people that you're responsible for supervising. Uh, rather than sort of micromanage them and tell them exactly what they've got to do when, the suggestion is that you sit down and go through and explain to them the concepts they should use to make decisions. So if you think uh, that innovation's important, that might be one. If you think communication is another... You might think that quality or customer service is one. Uh, you might think empathy is another one. It's up to your group to form the set of concepts appropriate to your situation. Now, the leadership comes not in formulating or only in formulating these, but endlessly and rigorously enforcing them. So when people do anything, you keep saying, how does that reflect on our concept of you know, customer service, or how does that reflect on our concept of innovation? In the idea used in government by a treasurer, so the, uh, the regional government was sort of running short of money, so one of the concepts they used was it has to have a payback period of less than a year, Another was that the government does not bail out specific organizations or corporations, although it may invest in an industry, 
provided there was a payback of within a year or so. And then it had a privatisation concept, which was, and this is a very good reason for the government to run something, that they should look to outsource it. And another one was uh, avoiding long-term liabilities. So things like pensions, rather than say you're going to get 70% of your salary when you retire, you had a pension scheme that said you save up money, we'll put some in, you put some in, whatever you have in the kitty when you retire is your pension fund. So there's sort of three concepts. And then when people walked in really for years and, and typically would say, please give us a million bucks because I've come up with this brilliant idea or because our company's struggling, you would go through the concepts and people learned not to come through the door until they had answers to these concepts, how what they asked for aligned with the concepts. Another one was um, outcome-based regulation. So you said, this is what we want at the end of the day, rather than this is what you must do. So the input to this mental leadership or um, concept-driven leadership is, first of all, an agreement from somewhere as to what these concepts should be, what they mean, and how they are to be interpreted. They then transform the thinking of the group into an aligned thinking, so that there is coordination of efforts. And the outcome, therefore, is more focused, more coordinated activity, but with a lot of room for individual interpretation and actions. So we were talking about customer service. What you do to improve customer service is sort of up to you, as long as it was about customer service. If people didn't like the concepts, they could over time try to get them modified or changed, or of course they could leave the group if they, they found them upsetting. The concepts or criteria are providing the role model, the thing to imitate, rather than an individual with all their sort of quirks and and errors. This system of leadership is in contrast to a dictatorial style of leadership, usually identified by the fact that there's a big long queue of people waiting to get access to the leader. Everybody's all, all conversation is about how will the leader react to this or that. Another model of leadership or system of leadership that's put forward is as a facilitator or coordinator where usually you have a handful of strong characters and the leadership comes down to making sure these coordinate and uh, behave in the way they act towards each other. And then you get the idea of a leader as somebody who makes the rules, sits there and uh, sends out emails saying that you're allowed to do this, you're not allowed to do that. Or someone who spends a lot of their time in a back room on a spreadsheet doing analysis and then making decrees from that analysis. Or else you get the charismatic sort of leader, somebody who everybody's friend and rushes around and agrees to everything 
and people accept that there's total chaos. They're not quite sure what they're doing and why they're doing it, for how long, but the guy in charge is a wonderful fellow and his heart's in the right place. Then you get that issue of people whose leadership style is simply to appease those who are senior to them, who can promote them, who have some power and influence. Oscar's own experience in working with the government and meeting CEOs was that nearly all of them really had no concept of planning beyond doing what the shareholders or the board of directors or whoever it was, the governors, told them to do, expected them to do. They, they understood leadership to be doing what impresses those who can promote you. And then you get the more, if you like, socialist style of leadership, where they think it's about protecting people underneath them, preserve their jobs, look after them, lie about their performance abilities, um, and protect them. Uh, so you're sort of managing downwards rather than upwards, uh, which, uh, again, can make you fairly popular, but uh, can lose you some empathy in, a, in the important political uh, dimension of, of being involved in the world. One of the advantages of the concept-driven style of leadership is that it doesn't depend quite so much on the personality and individual skills and experience of the person in the leadership role. It also means you don't have to spend an endless amount of time working out detail in, in plans. And hopefully it, uh, it gets around the problem of micromanagement. You do, of course, as ever, have to be careful about how sincere people are about these concepts in use. You think of the example of a company, of course, espousing very loudly that it's environmentally sensitive and that every decision it made, and it made every effort to be environmentally sensitive, so that then when a manager interprets that as permission to start a recycling system, it's a bit surprised when he gets a phone call saying, what the hell are you doing? Why are you wasting money on this rubbish? Uh, because he, you know, he believed the rhetoric. These concepts should really be, if nothing else, carefully worded, so that they are sincere. Perhaps in this context, rather than calling them concepts, they should be organizing principles. These are our projects or organizations or groups organizing principles. I can see, however, someone might say, well, just saying, you know, we're going to be innovative, customer-focused, empathetic, international, and something else, and then walking away doesn't really provide leadership. I've already mentioned that it's very important that the, there's an endless feedback process. When people make decisions, they're, they're approved or disapproved based on these concepts. However, there might still be need for action projects under each of these concepts. So you might say, therefore, in order to be more innovative, we're going to do the following things. And here we have you know, targets and and goals and, and, and deadlines for each of these things. So you might also set actions underneath the concepts. So the leadership would include coming up with you know, typical examples of actions and of course encouraging others to come up with 
ideas or actions that would align with the organizing principles. But that's not to forget that the person who says these are the five concepts or organizing principles that this company is going to be developed under is effectively the chief designer of the organization. If, if there's a part of leadership that's attractive, it is designing the future of the organization, the, the function and form it takes. And the five concepts will do that to a large extent. So this approach fits in with the idea of a leader being the chief or senior designer of the organization. This designing of an organization, when it includes designing the behavior of people in the organization, must of course include aligning individual self-interest with the group's interests. So when you set these concepts or guiding principles, they need to align with the actor's self-interest. For example, if one of them is to be innovative and people are innovative, then there should be some reward for that. Uh, one assumes self-interest includes a decent you know, level of income and some autonomy and uh, some sort of development of self-respect around knowledge and, and expertise. So part of the exercise, the design exercise, is to align people's self-interests with the, the group self-interest. Thinking more generally, if you look back through history, there are a lot of examples where strong leadership was counterproductive. I mean, typically, it lead to warfare and death. You, know, you think of Napoleon or Genghis Khan or whoever. Um, really, they're very destructive forces. When you look to economic and scientific progress, typically that was a decentralized system. I think the great strength of the American economic development is that that strong emphasis on a decentralized system, even their church system is decentralized as opposed to the Catholics and the Anglicans. In Renaissance cities, they were very careful to make sure that there weren't kings. Um, and one of the problems when the Medici came along is that they became singularly too powerful the economic prosperity of those Renaissance cities depended very much on groups of people being free to to trade and develop and get, come together to decide on what the rules and regulations should be. So this is the opposite of the idea of, you know, we need strong leadership. I think we need a decentralized system of leadership, someone who can handle a decentralized, and yet there needs to be some level of coordination which is where this mindset comes in. In Neil Ferguson's excellent uh, book and documentary, Britain you know, as Empire, 
he points out that the originally the system of the British Empire was very much a decentralized one. It was just to encourage trade wherever it could, and the role of the navy was to ensure that you know privateers could go around and and do trade. The American independence war was when they wouldn't allow the Americans to have local and regional government. And the result was they lost you know, America out of the empire. Learning from that lesson, other places like Australia and, and Canada were allowed to develop their own local government to make local rules. So, again, a decentralized system. And these countries prospered and still remain within the empire. It wasn't a system where everything had to be decided from a central point. And yet things like the House of Lords uh, courts were, remain as a sort of coordinating point if there was some sort of dispute that the local courts couldn't handle. I had a experience of a, a very localised example in a university where a new head of school came from overseas and sort of declared that he would like to see a tea room with a very decent coffee machine in it, as previous administrations had removed tea rooms as being a bit of a waste of time. And to some extent, it was a challenge to this person, who was meant to be head of a, quite a large academic department, to actually achieve that, because university had become so centralised and so regulated that it, it had to go through so many committees and so many people and so many al alternative people had opinions, even down to the sort of health and safety issues and the, the room scheduling and the opinion of you know, the vice-chancellor on tea rooms, that it, two years later the, the room still hadn't been you know, separated out or built and the coffee machine hadn't arrived. I think this is... It's sort of proof of a centralised, regulated leadership system as opposed to a decentralised, deregulated system. I think another relevant example is the one that when the British left India, it was just after the war, and centralised economies uh, were all the thing in the war to organise war efforts. Um, and so India was left with the idea that the government be very, very centralised and to some extent, that has slowed down its progress, economic and social development. Whereas by the time they left Hong Kong, free market forces philosophies were dominant um, and deregulation. And Hong Kong, of course, thrived enormously from that attitude towards leadership. I think this is also a challenge of Brexit and the European Union that if it in fact becomes more and more regulated, more and more centralised, um, that it will most likely lose the advantage that Europe had of being a, a series of competitive nations, which most likely is the, the reason that it became so dominant in the world. Just moving on, I, I don't want to want to play the importance of you know, power and influence uh, in a leadership role. If you want people to align with the guiding principles or concepts, 
you want them to be more innovative, more you know, customer-focused, those who don't do that need to be sanctioned in some way. I, of course, they can be encouraged financially, but it is, it is also necessary sometimes to be in a position to sanction them. Um, I, and I don't want to underestimate that. I think it's important that people be a little bit nervous that they will be excluded from the group if they don't align with the concepts. It's, it is all part of the blood-in-the-game argument. OK, so in conclusion, I've argued for a system of leadership that coordinates the mindset of the group and it would be something that occurs over a fairly long time period. This leadership system is in contrast to one that focuses on the personality of the leader or on their having organisational powers. I could see how somebody fairly low down the organisation could encourage and develop the set of concepts and, and be the one who constantly says, are we sticking to this organising principle? To repeat, I think terms like role model or hero or designer are nicer terms than leadership. And I think we all have to be very careful of pushing people in a direction they don't want to go, even if we think it's for their own good. Over Oscar's lifetime, he's been somewhat bemused by how much time and effort goes into stopping other people thinking they can tell him what to do, they can interfere in his life. Everyone from the government to his to boss to his friends to people in the street want to make rules and regulations or acceptable social norms that tell Oscar what to do. I think we've gone way too far in that, and yet I'm sure if you go back a couple of hundred years, life would have been far, far worse in that regard. If you lived in a very social hierarchy place like Europe, perhaps if you had a farm on the frontier, the opposite would be true. Human beings have come to dominate the world without having great claws, teeth, or thick skins, or whatever. They've survived and developed through cooperation, which has led, I think, to the development of a bigger brain and to speech. Coordination suggests some sort of leadership, but I think coordination is a much nicer word. People, again, free to join in an activity if they can see some mutual benefit for themselves. One hates the idea of teams, as in the team that carries the Pope around in his glorious golden chair. I think he's actually stopped doing that, but it was a classic example. And the word team is often used for a group of people who do as they're told. This is a, an understanding of leadership that I'm trying to avoid. And yet I do understand that some sort of mindset coordination might be very useful for a group. So for your assignment, you might want to think about how you would get your immediate group to agree a handful of concepts or organising principles that would direct 
their thinking become criteria for decision making and then how you would enforce it how you would ensure people stuck to those guidelines thank you very much